Well, let's turn to those words unchained since the dawn of time uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to spend some time looking at verses really 21 to 25. And just as we begin, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine called Nathan. Uh, Nathan went off to Swansea University several years ago, fantastic footballer. And he trialled for the university football team, along with 200 other freshers in Swansea. At the end of the trial, he was ranked among the top five footballers trialling. Incredibly good footballer, has been on the books of Cardiff City as a youth player. And so when the first team was announced, there was no surprise to anyone that he was picked for the first team, the university first team. And in the run-in to that game, he was told that he needed to be initiated to the team, which involved him getting blind drunk along with the rest of the squad. Now, Nathan is a Christian believer, and of course, he won't get blind drunk. And so he refused, and so he was dropped. And when the team lists were announced uh, for the first game of the season, Nathan found that he'd been put into the university's seventh team. Following Jesus is costly. Come on, Nathan, we think. No one has ever heard of a first year being in the first team. What's a night out with friends? Following Jesus is costly. Here's some advice that I read from a recent September edition of, edition of the New Musical Express magazine. In your first few months as a fresher, you'll be besieged by inanely grinning and glassy-eyed nutters peddling all manner of made-up, superstitious, stone-age nonsense under the guise of religion. Look out for the warning signs. Virginity, smugness, acoustic guitars, woolen jumpers, clear complexions and vacuous grins. Don't even make eye contact with these scum. You'll think you can handle it at first, but these people are experts at luring insane, rational people and brainwashing them into believing. No matter how depressed or lonely you become, do not succumb. Remember that it's better to be the most horrible, friendless, despised atheist on the planet than it is to be the world's most popular Christian. Close quotes. Or take another friend of mine who uh, came to the UK from Southern Asia to train for gospel ministry. Initially trained in London, then went to Union in Bridgend. And a couple of years um, later, moved his family to take up a pastorate in a very challenging church revitalisation context here in South Wales. Solid opposition from day one. Majority of the congregation and almost all of the, the non-staff uh, lay leaders not interested in expository Bible teaching. Mouth after, uh, me, month after month of whispering and criticism and church business meetings has worn him down. It's like death by a thousand paper cuts. So he reluctantly, a couple of years ago, had to hand in his notice. Following Jesus is costly. Or another friend of mine who dared to share his orthodox Christian views of marriage and sexuality in a school PTA meeting. And he was a hugely respected parent governor of the school. And he was fired from his position as parent governor at the school. But not before an extensive campaign to get him fired around the school gate. And, uh, and how dreadful that was for him and his family. Following Jesus costly. And I hear of those friends like... That And I think, really, Lord, is it worth it, Lord? Why us? Why now? 
Now, of course, those are just UK stories, and we've prayed about Ukraine, and, and around the world, it's 10 times, 100 times worse than what it is here. But is this really what it's going to look like, being faithful to Jesus in the 21st century? Why would anyone do that? And how could anyone do that? They're the questions I want to ask. Why would anyone do that? Why would our people within our churches do that? Why would people who we long to become Christians do that? And how could they do that? How can they stay faithful? How can we stay faithful after time after time when we have to bite our lip and walk away? Why would we do it? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. Well, that's the message at the heart of our passage we're looking at this evening. And uh, it's actually two answers. It's the why and the how of believers suffering for Jesus. That's the theme. Suffering for Jesus. Are you ready for it this evening? Suffering for Jesus. The why and the how. And before we dive into it, we just need to back up just a little bit. And uh, uh, the focus is verses 21 to 25. If you've got your Bibles open, either paper or on a, on a tablet or something like that. But from verses 18 to 20, Peter has been explaining that whether your boss is good or bad, harsh or unjust slaves should submit to them. And he makes it clear there's no honour in doing wrong and then facing the consequences. Of course. But if you don't do wrong and then are treated harshly, well, there is an honour, there is a glory, that's a gracious thing. It receives God's smile from heaven when you're faithful to him, when you're accused. And uh, then Peter spells out that suffering for doing good, which is from verses 21 to 25, that has been on the ticket for followers of Jesus since the moment we started following Jesus. It's not for, for the super spiritual the, the gold standard Christians who are prepared to suffer. No, this is coming for us all if we're going to be faithful to Jesus. Because he says, for to this you were called. Look down in verse 21 of our readings. In other words, the calling to follow Jesus is precisely a calling to be ready to suffer for doing good. The suffering life is the normal Christian life, says Peter. Yes, it's heading to resurrection, but it's going to go via a cross-shaped life first. The taking hits for Jesus life, the refusing to lash out life, the saying no to bitterness life, the saying no to cynicism or adopting a victim mentality life. And Peter's going to make the case by explaining to us the why and the how of Christian suffering. And the key that unlocks it all is uh, grasping afresh the cross of Jesus Christ. I know here at Heath you love to Think about and sing about and study the cross of Jesus. That's what we're looking at tonight, okay? The greatest suffering for doing good that has ever happened in all of history. And as we look at that, we will see how the suffering of Jesus Christ provides for us the grounds for our suffering and the guide to the suffering that we might endure. The grounds and the guide. To use Paul's language, if you're in union with Christ, then, then Christ's story is my story and my story is his. So we're going to tease these themes out, the why of Christians suffering. Why should Christians be prepared to suffer? If you're a Christian here tonight, Peter's going to convince you, I hope, or try to convince you, why you need to be prepared to suffer. Uh, why we're called to endure suffering faithfully. It's our first point. Peter's answer, a precious substitution. That's our first point. A precious substitution, verse 21 and 24. So let me read out verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. 
He picks up and expands the theme further in verse 24. Have a look down in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what's Peter saying here? I think what Peter is saying here is that the only reason you would refuse to suffer for Jesus Christ, whether that's being dropped from the first 11, or toning down your faithfulness to Christ in the workplace, and your refusal to to, to give in when perhaps a liberal PTA expects you to, the only reason you would, would, uh, would refuse to suffer for the cause of Jesus is because you'd forgotten where you once were and what Christ has done. Where you once were and what Christ has done. You've, you've got to have forgotten those to not be prepared to suffer. You see, if you thought that uh, being a Christian was basically you just carrying on your life, once upon your time you weren't a Christian, then you trust in Jesus and you carried on merrily in the same more or less direction, well, if that's your view, that's not going to do it. That's not going to keep you faithful to Jesus over the long haul. Anything for a quiet life, you'll think, oh, that's a bit of least resistance. But if only you remembered where you once were, if only you remembered the weight of sin that once bore you down, friends, brother or sister, if you're here as a Christian believer, like John Bunyan's enormous burden in Pilgrim's Progress, that rucksack on his back full of pride and greed and criticisms and judgmentalisms and heartlessness, and manipulations, and self-importance, and exaggerations, and jealousy, and bitterness, and shame bearing down on you. And any one of those vices, those sins, would keep you out of eternity forevermore, condemning you to hell. Any one of them would do before a holy God who cannot abide just one. And yet this, this, whole, this rucksack, hold all, on our backs, stuffed to overflowing with back-breaking guilt. If only you remembered... Once you were in desperate need of saving, once you were mortally wounded, limping to your grave, if only once you remembered you were like a lost sheep, like a lost sheep, helpless, hopeless, heading for the cliffs and the wolves, lost without even knowing and remembering and realising you were lost. If only you remembered where you once were and if you remembered what Christ has done about it. You remember that, that the greatest news of all the world is that the creator of the whole world, the king of heaven, the God of holiness and justice and glory and honour, the one who could have cast me away in a moment, stepped in. Stepped in. He himself, verse 24, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. My crippling burden of sin, the hold all that holds it all. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Striking, isn't it, how Peter, did you notice in verse 24 of our Bible readings, Peter describes the cross as the tree? How interesting. Why does he use the language of the tree? Jesus died on a cross, didn't he? He does the same, by the way, when he preaches in Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 10. Peter loves talking about the cross as a tree. Almost certainly, this is a reference to Deuteronomy 21, verse 25, if you're taking notes. Because there, uh, Moses describes the judicial curse of anyone who is hung on a tree. 
It's not just our sins on Jesus' back, but the terrifying consequences of our sins on him. The settled righteous curse, holy wrath of a holy God, smothering the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He himself, no one else did it. Did it voluntarily, didn't have his arm twisted. Come on, Jesus, off you go. No, he just went like a lamb, quietly to the slaughter. Not a reluctant victim of cosmic child abuse or accidentally caught up in the crossfire. He just went on, carrying our sins, our shame, our filthy language, our hidden thoughts, our anger, our greed, our pride, our criticisms. He carried them all, our past sins, our present sins, our future sins, all our sins. He carried them all. Here's John Piper. Everything that makes you a stinking candidate for heaven went on him. And so what does Peter say? By his wounds, verse 24 again, look, you have been healed. Carrying the back-breaking burden of all who would turn and trust in him, literally broken under the curse of God, mocked, whipped, tortured, pierced, so that we could be healed. We could be restored. This time Peter is uh, quoting Isaiah 53, and it's another one of his favourite passages. He quotes it three times in all of his, uh, uh, in, in this little section. But he's a brilliant pastor. And when I was studying this, I realised something which I think is, is marvellous. Because Isaiah 53 verse 5, which is the quote here, he slightly quotes it a bit differently. So let me, uh, I don't know if, if you've got a Bible, you can put one hand in 1 Peter 2 and flick back to Isaiah 53, okay? And uh, see if you can spot the difference between the two readings that, um, that Peter says. Okay, so I'm going to turn to Isaiah 53, and we're going to look at verse 5. He's quoting this, more or less. This is what he says. This is Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Okay, got that? Very familiar. Let's flick back to 1 Peter 2. What does he say? And by his stripes, you were healed. Do you notice the very subtle difference? Isaiah 53, by his stripes, we are healed. 1 Peter 2, by his stripes, you are healed. Now, why does he switch the pronouns? Why does he do that? What's going on, Peter? And, and you could say, well, of course, it's the same thing. Doesn't Peter know his Bible? Well, I'm sure he does know his Bible. He quotes the Old Testament all over the place. And in fact, at the start of verse 24, he says, he bore our sins... Um, in verse 24, who himself bore our sins, and that is what it says in Isaiah 53. He bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. So Peter can get his pronouns right if he wants to. So why does he switch the pronouns from, from we to you? Well, let's just think for a second about who he is writing to. Because Peter is, uh, the general consensus is that uh, Peter the Jew is writing to a primarily Gentile audience. The people who received the, uh, the letter of Peter, which was uh, various uh, scattered exiles all over Asia Minor. And, and uh, that Gentile audience, he already says in other parts of uh, 1 Peter, had a horrendous past. A back catalogue of sin, you might say. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, um, have a look. It says the following, for uh, we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked with lewdness, lusts, 
drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And I imagine that, that as um, Peter is writing, he, he uh, imagines his readers hearing, by his wounds we are healed. That's what the readers read, by his wounds we are healed. Uh, people would say, well, 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 you would say that, Peter. You would say, by his wounds, we are healed, because you're all those Jewish inner circle kind of people. You're the mature Christians who've had a religious upbringing, and uh, yeah, your spiritual wounds have been healed, haven't they? But we're far too gone, because we've messed up our lives far too much from a Gentile audience. And Peter says, friends, how wrong you are. How wrong you are, because by his wounds, you are healed. Not just we, the, 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 the in crowd, the religious Jewish people. It's you, you converted drug addict. You trusting former sex worker. You recovering legalist. You now believing agnostic. By his wounds, you, Heath Evangelical, are healed. Friends, if you are in Christ today, if you know Jesus Christ for yourself, then your sin's debt has been fully and finally and completely paid. It is finished. That we might die to sin and live for righteousness. So the question is, will you believe that? Will you believe it? Will you live in the freedom of it? And allow those around you who believe it to live in the freedom of it too? Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth. None. For you were straying like sheep, verse 25, like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You've been picked up, as it were, by the scruff of your neck, despite your kicking and screaming, our constant stumbling and failing, and gloriously rescued and returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's a great privilege as a pastor of Highfields to speak here at Heath, and for the pastor of Heath to speak at Highfields, but we're not the pastors of these churches. The pastor, the senior pastor, is of course the shepherd of our souls, the Lord Jesus. He is the one, isn't he? That's what pastor means, shepherd. And he'll never disappoint us. He'll never miss a beat. He'll, uh, he'll never overplay his hand. He'll never be absent. He always knows what we need exactly when we need it. Well, what have we been seeing so far? We, we have seen, haven't we, that in the context of suffering for Jesus Christ, the only reason, the only reason why you would accept being dropped, the only reason why uh, you would be prepared to walk away from a stable ministry position or allow your name to be hurled in the mud or whatever it may be, the only reason that you would, you, you would be okay with how you've been treated in a relationship that doesn't go your way and uh, you'd be okay not having the last word. The only reason why any of that would happen is because you had refused them to forget where you once were and what Christ has done. Your debts have been cancelled. Your spiritual mortgage has been paid off in full. All your selfishness, all your pride, your unkindness, your failures vanished with one press of a button. When that penny drops, when you fully grasp it, do you know what, friends? You can find yourself letting things go much more easily. When you realise what he has done, he's taken it all, he's taken it away, you find yourself a lot less precious about things. You know, you, you, know, you think, I, I, you know, I could be prepared to take a hit 
for following Jesus. I, I might do that, you know. I might just do that. I might even make space in my life for people who say unkind things to me because I've said the worst of things to God and he's forgiven me and he's paid for it all. And you might just find yourself no longer having to grasp endlessly for the smile of other people and everyone's approval, which can be so claustrophobic when we're living for the, the smile and the, and, 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 the, and the praise of others. You don't have to give yourself into that slipstream that the whole culture is living for. I just want to live an easy life, a happy, comfortable life. It's phenomenally liberating. It's a precious substitution. That's our first point. It's the biggest point, uh, by the way, just to say, but we do need to, to finish the passage, and there are some other little bits which we've ignored. So, point one, a precious substitution. Point two, a perfect illustration. A perfect illustration, and this is verses 21 to 23. Let's again step back. We have seen point one was the grounds of Christian suffering. The, the why would you possibly suffer for Jesus because of what he's done for you, right? Now on to the, the guide, the how. What might it look like in practice? How might I do it? Let's look down at verse 21 again. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us as an example that you should follow in his steps. Now sometimes we uh, read that uh, second half of verse 21 and uh, some more reformed types get a little bit twitchy when we think about following Christ's death for us as an example. And we think, oh no, whatever the cross is, it's not an example for us to follow. And maybe uh, we have done a bit of theology and we've heard about the various theories of the atonement. Uh, maybe you've read the book, The Cross of Christ by John Stott, a brilliant book. And you read of the moral influence theory by Peter Abelard, who's in the 12th century. And he talked about the fact that the cross is merely something that moves our hearts when we look at it. And we look at the cross and we're influenced morally to live a good life, just looking at the cross. And, uh, and then we live a good enough life to be saved. And that's what Peter Avalard said. And we rightly say, no, that is not what the cross is doing. That's a subjective reading of the cross. We need to first and foremost ground the, the cross work as an objected, an objective, precious substitution, penal substitutionary atonement. Our sins are paid for in our place in his body on the tree. That's done. That's objective, okay? That's clear. But, Peter would say, once that objective work of Christ on the cross has been done and we're clear about, Peter would say, don't stop looking at the cross now. <laughs> yes, it's true he has paid for our sins. That's all gone. That's done. That's the, that is the case. But his death on the cross for us is the perfect illustration of what it looks like to suffer for doing good. And uh, the word, uh, uh, for example, in verse 21, he, uh, leaving us as an example that you should follow in his steps, that is the, the, the ancient word for a stencil. If you're learning to write, as uh, my uh, uh, youngest son was doing a couple of years ago, and uh, we, he was using dotty letters, okay, so you've got a clever computer font, and it has little dots on it, and he fills in the blanks in the dotty letters. And uh, that's uh, Noah's way of writing. But uh, in ancient times, you didn't have dotty letters. You had a wax stencil. And uh, the schoolmaster would uh, Im embed the letters and press into the letters the shape of, of the letters. And so the, the young child would run their, their, um, 
their, their, their crayon or their, their, their wick over the letters. And as they wrote, their, their muscle memory would form the shape of the letters that you can't not write an alpha or a beta or whatever the letter would have been. Well, Peter is saying, as you trace your life around Jesus' perfect illustration, this innocent example of doing good, as you do that, his example that you would follow and walk in his steps, and as you do it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, will you develop spiritual muscle memory? A bit like the musician who sits down at the piano and has done grade eight, and they can't hit the wrong note because they've practiced so many times, they've traced their fingers in the right directions. Well, so too, you can't not live the right way when you've traced your life around Christ's cross enough times. You find yourself, verse 24, living for righteousness and dying to sins. And so in verses 22 to 23, we get more quotations. Here, here's from Isaiah 53 on how Christ suffered. Let's uh, have a little look and remind ourselves. Verse 22, you see it's indented. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, and committed himself to him who judges righteously. Not one sin in our Lord Jesus, was there? Not one sin. Impeccable life. Not a trace of sin. Neither during his passion, climaxing up to his death, which is sometimes called his passive obedience, uh, nor uh, throughout his uh, 33 years of life and ministry, building up to it, which is sometimes called his active obedience. Not one hint of sin. And don't go thinking this was easy, for Jesus because he was God, that uh, somehow maybe he was tempted to sin or harbour a bitter spirit or dwell on a lustful thought and then his divinity would kick in and a mysterious override would happen on him which would pull him back from sinning. No, he was, yes, utterly sinless, but he was utterly human as well as utterly divine, tempted in every single way as we were, but without sin, Hebrews 4. And Peter particularly invites us to trace our lives over his speech, over his silence, and over his surrender. Shall we just do that very briefly? Will you trace your life, friends, over Christ's exemplary speech? Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Only spoke words of grace. Always the right word at the right time to the right person. Never any hint of flattery or exaggeration, or slander, or manipulation, or pride, or deceit. Trace your life, brother or sister, on his exemplary speech. Keep doing it. Trace your life over his exemplary silence. This is wonderful, isn't it? Verse 23, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. The Lord Jesus knew exactly when to speak, and exactly when not to speak, which is... A great skill, filled with, faced with a barrage of mockery and abuse and insults and disdain. He just took it silently, didn't defend himself, didn't try and justify himself, didn't push back, fight back, adopt a victim mentality, just took it, took it, took it. Not once did he lash out when he was attacked. So will you, friend? Trace your life around his exemplary silence and say, Lord, please, may his silence shape the way I respond 
in suffering. And when you trace your life around his exemplary surrender, end of verse 23, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. In the original, actually, the word himself isn't there. It literally reads, he didn't threaten, but entrusted or kind of handed over to him who judges justly. In other words, he entrusted, yes, himself to God, but he entrusted everything to God. He entrusted his enemies to God. He entrusted his situation to God. He entrusted his own mission to God. The God who is the judge of all, the seer of all, the knower of all. Jesus knew, didn't he? Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. He didn't need to defend himself. He knew, I'm going to entrust myself to God, my Father, who will see justice done eventually. A stunning act of surrender. Refusing to be bitter, refusing to become obsessed. Even on the cross, praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So friends, can I ask you, will you trace your life on his exemplary speech and his silence and his surrender? And Peter says, as you do so, as you trace your life onto this perfect illustration, will you press your life into his Such that when faced with opposition for following Jesus, when doors seem to close for following Jesus, because you make your stand, as will happen, or as words are said to you or about you that are categorically untrue or unfair when your character is impugned, which can so often happen, and people assume the worst of you, everything in you calls for you to speak. And to see justice done and to lash out and to defend yourself. And at that point, you're forgetting Jesus, aren't you? Because you just took it on the chin. Will you remember Jesus then? Will you follow Jesus then? Will you cast your mind to Calvary then? A closing illustration and then we'll be done. Before the reunification of Germany, there was a man by the name of Juve Holmer who tried to enrol his children in the University of East Berlin. I'm not sure if you know his story. He had eight children, and every single one of their applications was rejected. Now, the East German Ministry of Education wasn't in the habit of explaining why they rejected applicants, but in this case, it was not that difficult to work out because uh, Juve Holmer was the pastor of a church in East Berlin. And uh, for 26 years, the Ministry of Education was run by Margaret Honecker. And uh, those of you who've got a a bit of a modern history bent will remember the name Eric Honecker, who was East Germany's iron-fisted communist leader. But history has has a habit of changing things, and sometimes quite quickly, because the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. Eric Honecker um, had built the Berlin Wall, but then is suddenly deposed as leader of East Germany and eventually faces trial on charges of treason. And Eric and Margaret Honecker were booted out of their luxurious palace in Valitz and found themselves as public enemies number one and number two. Now, while they're awaiting their trial, Eric and Margaret Honecker uh, didn't have anywhere to go. And then suddenly Eric was diagnosed with cancer and he needed a place to recover post-surgery. And as you can imagine, in this reunified Germany, there was nowhere for him to go. Far too sick to uh, be uh, in prison. No one dared to open up their home for him because he was so hated. Now, Juve Holmer's church ran a convalescent centre, but the convalescent centre was completely full. There was no space for anyone to go, not even the Honickers. And so do you know what happened? 
Juve Holmer opened up his home to Eric and Margaret Honecker to live with them. Now, members of the church were in absolute uproar. What on earth are you doing? These are people who try to close us down. And they received threats to defund their ministry just because he offered mercy to a former enemy. Pastor Homer, people were asking, what are you doing? What are you playing at? Eric Honecker deserves to die a horrible death for what he's done to you. Don't you remember those eight children who couldn't get an education? He ruined you. Just strike back, pull up the drawbridge, let him suffer. But Pastor Homer refused to let him suffer or let anyone suffer. He refused to be bitter. He refused to be angry. Because Pastor Homer was so in awe of what the Lord Jesus had done. He refused to retaliate. He refused to strike back. He refused to return persecution and hatred with anything other than love and compassion. Homer had seen the perfect illustration that the Lord Jesus gives. Now, maybe you're thinking as we close, Dave, I could never do that. I could never do what Juve Holmer did. Of all the qualities I've got, exemplary speech, exemplary silence, exemplary sur surrender, they probably wouldn't make your top ten, perhaps. You think, I just defend myself, I lash out, I want to be improved. You think, this could never be me. And then at that point, I want to say to you, well, friend, can I remind you who is writing the letter that we're studying this evening? Who's writing it? Oh, yes, that would be the person, Peter, who uh, once had Jesus say to him, get behind me, Satan. And he once lashed out with a sword to cut off the high priest's ear, the one who promised undying loyalty to Jesus. And then a moment later was rolled over by a servant girl. I don't know him, I don't know him. Man, I don't know him. But this would be the one who had received forgiveness from his saviour who had seen his saviour die and rise again and would be restored and recommissioned three times, just like he denied Jesus three times, three times he's told, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. We think to ourselves, surely, Lord Jesus, you want better shepherds than Peter, more reliable shepherds than Peter, more reliable pastors than Peter, more robust, more safe pairs of hands to look after your church. Are you really willing to leave the state of gospel ministry in the hands of people like Peter, such damaged goods? Those who so categorically fail to trace their lives on the perfect illustration? Aha, says Peter. Remember point one. It's not just a perfect illustration because there is a precious substitution. Remember, friend, remember, brother or sister, this evening, where you once were and what Christ has done. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. For by whose stripes? You, you, you have been healed. Let's have a moment of quietness. Then I'll pray. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.
Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for your precious substitution, paying for all our sin, past, present, future, sins in our minds, sins in our hearts, sins of our mouths, sins of our deeds. Lord God, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you have done, meeting us in our biggest need. And thank you that as well as a precious substitution, you have given us the perfect illustration. You've shown to us what it means to suffer for doing good. To suffer unjustly, yes. To speak only words of grace. To be silent when we're tempted to strike back. And to hand over our concerns and our pressures and our brokenness and our fears to him who judges justly. Lord, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here this evening. So many with different backgrounds that I can't possibly know, but you know. Pray, please, would each one of us marvel afresh at the precious substitution of our Saviour in their place and the perfect illustration of suffering for doing good that we see in the cross. Please, may we be prepared to suffer for Jesus, even this week. Make your stand for him when everything in us tells us to be quiet or to hide away. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, let's close our time by singing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Let's stand with the music and sing.
one to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen.